Welcome to Eye on Innovation, brought to you by the OAS Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Powers, and today we're going to be discussing the state of the presbyopia drop market. We're here at the OAS conference in beautiful, sunny San Diego, and I know that this is a topic that is on everybody's mind, just what's going on and where do we stand with this market. Um, today, our distinguished guest is Dr. Paul Karpacki, a dear friend of mine. Dr. Karpacki serves as the Clinical Director of Cornea and External Disease at Kentucky Eye Institute in Lexington, Kentucky. He's also an Associate Professor uh, at the University of Pikeville School of Optometry. He also serves as another one of our guests here at the OAS Podcast, so appreciate you taking time to be on the other side of the interview, and welcome to the OAS Podcast, Dr. Karpacki. Thank you, Carrie. True honor to get to do this, and uh, thanks for asking me. It's kind of, it is kind of nice to be on this side. Um, I can't say I've done that, so it gives me a chance to kind of go through it, and I love the topic. I think it was obvious today that presbyopia is still a very important category, and in light of a launch and now a new product uh, approved by the FDA, I, I'm, I'm honored to get to talk about it and share some insights that hopefully will help. I think it's the right time um, for us to just talk about the state of the market, where does it stand, and what are we going to see coming next. So, of course, presbyopia, huge population, um, almost 120 people in the U.S. alone. And Vuity, it's, we're, we've just passed the two-year anniversary, actually, of Vuity being approved. Um, and Culosi now just newly approved, too, not available on the market yet. And a number of other products coming to market as well. So I think a great place for us to start today is with your own clinical experience with Vuity and what have the learnings been? Yeah, my clinical experience has been interesting because I've had some of the most successful patients um, as well as failure patients who weren't able to succeed with it. Um, but I, you know, one of my closest friends uh, is a racquetball player. He used to play at a real high level and noticed that with presbyopia is losing that ability. And so he was anxious to try it and, and had incredible results. Like he said, it was like being in his 20s and he had lasted an extended period of time. And it, uh, it changed his game. He was really competitive again, like at the top level. He could see the ball rotation. And uh, it just, he said, this is a game changer. And so I got excited about it. Very next patient, about the same age. Um, also a male patient I thought was going to work. They're very similar. Tried it. And they couldn't get past the first little bit. They had some headaches, some visual disturbances. Things were difficult. And they're like, well, I'm not using this again. And so there was this real difficulty in identifying how you could have so much success and then non-success and very similar candidates. And I, the great thing, though, is you know, launching a new product, especially a category like this, is going to be wrought with challenges. I, it's, it's a huge patient population. Their, their mindset is very different. Some, some are so used to just magnification from readers, which this drug, that's not what it would deliver. Others are, you know, in the highly myopic category, which may not be ideal, presbyopic. And we didn't know the ideal candidate, so we just tried it on everybody. And unfortunately, when it worked, it was phenomenal. And when it didn't work, uh, people were disappointed. Did you see any differences in terms of responders, um, or not even just responders, but in terms of receptivity to liking to use it with age? You know, we, we didn't narrow it down to that level. That's a terrific question because it, any drug that's going to be successful, whether it's dry eye, whether it's retinal disease, uveitis, or, or even presbyopia, requires identifying an ideal candidate. If you can't tell a doctor this is the patient most likely to succeed, they are going to uh, select their train wrecks, their worst patients, the patients who complain the most. And that's not the first patients you want to 
treat with any drug because your chance of success are low because nothing's ever really worked. So we have these patients who complain a lot. They don't wear their progressive lenses well or their multifocal contact lenses. So we take these worst candidates and we try it. If we knew the ideal candidate going into it, and again, this is a great lesson for any drug launch, you're going to have much higher success because you're going to be saying, oh, this is not that person. Let me try it on who's likely to succeed. And when they succeed, the doctor's more likely to keep prescribing it. And we never had that. So we were trying it on our worst patients. We were trying it on high myopes, which really in hindsight didn't make much sense. We were trying it in high hyperopes, which again may not be an ideal candidate. We had no direction in where to. And so we tried it in perhaps poor candidates, had poor results and thought, well, I'm not gonna use this again, it didn't work. And so I think that, that played a key role. That being said, I have a little more of an idea, but I haven't really finalized where that is. I'm hoping with CLOSI, the new drug approval, uh, because of its profile being different, we might have a better chance of identifying that key candidate. I do think it's going to be someone who is going to be a relatively early presbyope, and that's not like a small group. We're still talking about 30, 40 million people that might be between like age 40 and age 55. Actually, that'd probably be around 60 to 70 million people, very large population. So it's going to be in there. It's going to be your patients within a range of presbyopia, I mean, in the sense of their refractive error. Emetropes were difficult to get into practices. We thought we could bring those in, but they, they just don't come into eye doctors. They're like, I'll go get rare reading glasses. So we never had that group, which might've been a really good candidate group. Those low hyperopes are good candidates if we can teach them what to expect. Low myopes actually just take their glasses off. So I can tell you, it's probably gonna be in that age range. It's gonna be in the late 30s, early 40s to about 50. Five. Now, I wouldn't exclude patients outside of that. Some will succeed, but have to have better expectations. Okay. Very good. And I'm really glad that you pronounced that for me because now I know that I was pronouncing it incorrectly. <laughs> Closy actually makes so much more sense than Culosi, what I was yes, saying. Yes, so I know it's funny. I it's a better name than I thought it was in the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so it's no secret, of course, that Vuity sales have been well below initial expectations. The latest data I've seen is about 1,300 scripts per week. And I think a lot of us in the industry are wondering, is there still promise for this category? And so, you know, I think that something that all these other companies are, are very curious about is um, what, are the what are the biggest learnings from the Vuity launch in your perspective? that they could use to, to have a more successful launch in the category. I love that. I think that's what gives the most hope for this category. Number one, you know, could, a, could we be successful in presbyopia with a therapeutic? There's 128 million people who suffer from presbyopia. I mean, you have to get two to 3% of the market and you might be one of the most successful drugs in eye care. So, so absolutely there's that potential. And I do think we'll exceed that. Um, but I love how you phrased it, that we, what were the learnings? I think more than the drug not being a good medication, I don't think that was the bigger factor. I think the bigger factor was the lack of identification of who's a good candidate, the lack of identification for who's not a candidate, that might be even more important, and how to educate patients. So we can take that and learn a lot. Uh, one key learning is all, you've heard this many times, but you know, under promise, over delivered. To an extent, you have to be able to educate enough that there's enough incentive for them to do it. So you don't want to be way low on your, on your under-promising. You have to be realistic. Uh, so want to start there. But for example, we had no idea that when the drug first came out as a once-a-day dosing, that we really needed BID. And by the time they came out with a BID indication, 
unfortunately, everybody already had their opinion that the drop didn't last a long time, uh, you know, on the QD. So that was not fortunate. The unfortunate came out as a QD initial. So the new drug, Closy, will come out initially as BID, which is a positive. And the way it's dosed is you'll have a time frame in between when you put the second one in, maybe three, four hours after the first drop. So you get this eight-hour duration. So we'll address that pretty straightforward. The second thing is we really have to look at how we educate the patients to set the right expectations. Like I had a patient come in and say, you know, with my reading glasses, I can see these letters a lot bigger than when I put my viewity in my eyes. Well, the drop's not a magnifier. That's not the mechanism. It's extended depth of field. So they were thinking it's going to be like my magnifiers. And, and to be fair, some of the early advertisements, the direct-to-consumer, you know, said get rid of your glasses, your reading glasses. So the patients were thinking, well, instead of having my reading glasses, I've got this drop, and it's a completely different mechanism than magnification. So you had this entire population that were expecting something totally different. There's no drops that magnify an image like reading glasses. There's no drops that kind of work like a progressive lens. Uh, so we needed to tell patients that what this is going to do is give you a further depth of focus. You're going to see more objects in different areas. You're going to be able to utilize this with your current habitual lenses. You know, you're going to reduce the need and in some cases eliminate, but not make that the absolute expectation. So that hurt. We also learned that 82% of all prescriptions came from optometry, uh, which isn't that surprising in hindsight. They, it's what they manage is primary eye care, which can be the first doctor they see when they come in for presbyopia is going to be an optometrist. And I don't, I think, I think it's wise the companies to divide between ophthalmology and optometry, their education, but not if it's a presbyopia drop. That'd be like, you have to educate optometry about surgical co-management so they send patients in, but not necessarily the intricacies of a cataract surgery. It wouldn't make sense. Same thing, and maybe it doesn't make sense to educate ophthalmology to the level of what this presbyopia drop does and focus much more on those who are going to prescribe. So those are little nuances, but they were learning experiences of what's, what's in there. So the expectations played a role. And then the, the last that was really important was, I don't think we, we knew the profile of side effects. Like for example, we knew there was gonna be headaches or brow aches. That was easy to educate. And if you educate someone, patients are like, oh, I knew that was gonna happen, I'm completely good with it. It's when you don't tell them about it that they feel like, oh, there's a complication going on. There's something wrong with me or this drop, I'm just stopping it. And, and so the second thing was, we knew there might be some burning and stinging. We didn't anticipate the visual effects. And even though it was a small percentage overall, like where they'd see a little light outside or they'd notice dimming, or they would notice words at the beginning were difficult to, to perceive or focus on. I never mentioned any of those to patients. I didn't expect them. They weren't necessarily in the data that came out with the approval. And so when patients experience any one of those, they're like, well, my doctor didn't mention this. It's not a headache. It's not burning. There's something wrong with this drop. I'm stopping it. And, and I think we missed how to educate. And I do think that, you know, we, we learned a lot from this drop in terms of its profile. 1.2% pilocarpine, perhaps, you know, the new drug coming out, Closy, is one-third of that concentration. That alone may give us a lot of the less need of education about potential side effects because we may have less. I hope all these companies are listening to these really valuable pearls on how they should launch this back into optometry. So, um, so with Closy, what are the other differences that uh, we're going to see with that or we think we're going to see uh, between that and the UID? Yeah, we're going to learn a lot more as we, we try a drug. But I like the fact that the pilocarpine concentration is, is truly one-third the concentration. 
That's a lot. I would think even if you drop it half or 75% or 25% drop to like 75% concentration, I would think that would help. But I love the fact that it's 0.4% instead of 1.2%. Uh, and I love that when you look at the data with the BID dosing, you're getting a good eight hour effect. Uh, some will get more, uh, you know, some may get less too, but you're, you're finding that kind of sweet spot. I'm expecting that if you go to one third of the concentration of the active, you're going to get uh, significantly less side effects. Now, I'm still going to educate about all these things we learned from beauty. In case a patient experienced one, they'll know that, hey, this is a finding, not a complication. Uh, but I think then you've got lubricating agents that go into this product that play a role. Think about the paresbyopic population. They're going to be in their 40s, 50s, and some even in their 60s. A lot more dry eye. Digital device use has, has obviously shown that patients get that a lot sooner now. So there's going to be pretty much the whole patient population. The lubricating agent should help. It's got no preservative, which I think will really help. You can't have preservatives and chronic drops for that age population. The lower concentration, which we discussed, and the pH is a near neutral. So you're going to get, I think, from that alone, a profile that should really help with comfort and with overall patient experience. So I, um, they're going to come out with the right dosing, BID, right out of the gate. They're going to have a near neutral pH, hopefully eliminate some of those side effects that I expect it will. The lubricating agents make sense for that patient population, one-third the concentration of pilocarpine, and we're seeing the duration in the clinical data that was released that, that shows it's achieving what we'd hope to achieve. Now, knowing how to educate patients, how to set the right expectations, we have a real chance of making this work for a huge patient population. So uh, there are a number of other products coming out, uh, or other companies with other products coming out, so Vices Therapeutics, Lens, Occupier, just to name a few, there's actually quite a few um, quite a few in the pipeline. What do you think will be the key differences um, in terms of the patient benefits of these various other products? You know, that's where it's going to be interesting because these really are variations. They're, they're not all, you know, pilocarpine. Maybe they're all myonics, but you have one that has carbacol with bromonidine and vices. You've got acyclidine, uh, which will be new for us because that wasn't really used in glaucoma many, many years ago. Uh, that'll come in, uh, obviously, in the lens product. You've got uh, phentolamine, that will get a different mechanism that'll work for Occupier. I, so I'm excited by that because I think, again, you don't need a lot of 128 million people on a chronic, often used medication to be very successful. I think we're going to find certain patients will respond differently to the products. Uh, those who do really well on pilocarpine, like many of my patients did, even with Beauty, and now a lower concentration with hopefully even better profile, I'm going to keep them there. They're going to do extremely well. But now I'm going to have options for those who say, you know, I, uh, I did well, but I noticed this side effect or whatever to say, hey, let's try this other option. Being a different medication, even though it's myotic, maybe this relieves or maybe we identify. Remember we talked about the theme at the beginning? When you can identify the ideal candidate, doctors do much better, companies do much better, the drug succeeds greater because you're, you're hedging your opportunities to succeed in the right population. I think these drugs are going to help us to identify the ideal candidate for each of them to a degree and for the category. So I, I'm, I'm excited about Closey just because we're going to have a chance to do that. But I'm also equally excited about new therapeutics in this class that may help the patients that I still need to address with another option. And it keeps it open. It encourages us to recognize that, hey, this category has a real pipeline of opportunity. We need to get involved in in treating these patients now because of just what the future holds. And I think it'll only enhance the success we have with our patients. So we have time for one more question. 
Uh, something we've been hearing a lot about this weekend here at OIS is just what a tough year for funding it's been for a lot of these companies um, looking looking to, to capitalize. So I think, you know, crystal ball time, uh, do you think that we're finally going to see this market take shape? Um, if you were speaking to our VC friends in there yeah. looking for a place to invest. You know, I do think it has to, just sheer numbers. I mean, imagine that you had a drug that would affect 5% of a category, and revenue-wise, you'd be the most successful drug in the space. That, that's just unheard of. I mean, I, I do a lot in dry eye, you know, for many, many years. And while it's a big population of, you know, 40 million patients, and again, there's an untapped opportunity that's enormous because we're only treating about 1 million with therapeutics, but that's a great opportunity. It pales compared to 128 million presbyopes in the United States. So you could have incredible financial success with just identifying the ideal candidates and treating those and then that expanding over time. So I do think the numbers will speak. Now, to be fair, Oris is gonna have, you know, to come out without the huge, big, big launch that you often get from, you know, companies that uh, VCs and other supporters in terms of that big kind of launch that we saw with, you know, like a Mybo or, or XDMV, you know, which is exciting those happen. So they'll have to be more focused. They'll have to uh, look at how to educate the physicians on those ideal candidates and who not to choose. They're going to have to do uh, direct consumer in social media and other indirect ways that are direct to consumer to them. You have to uh, come out with really strategic approaches. But if you look at that management team, if anyone can do it, they're going to be able to achieve it. I mean, they have incredible depth of experience in that group. And I think that'll set the stage for the entire category. So you start looking at numbers and then expanding, then all of a sudden you're going to see it's going to become obvious, the financial opportunity, and that's when the other companies decide, hey, I've, I've really got to get into this space. So it'll be a reverse order of what we usually see for so many drugs, kind of approve it because of what happened the first time with Beauty. What we, but we've learned so much from Beauty. We've uh, picked up so many pearls in how to make this successful, so many ways of who to target, including the, the doctors and the patients. Uh, what set expectations to set? I think we have a better drug for this page ca age category with the, uh, the preservative-free, the lubricating agents, the lower concentration, potentially less side effects, that we've got a really good shot at this happening, and you don't have to go far. You don't have to have a high percentage to be incredibly successful, and I think the numbers will speak. So uh, I'm excited. I'm glad to see this coming back, and I think it'll bode well for all the future companies in the pipeline as well. Well, I love that we're ending this uh, this podcast on a high note and uh, with good news, hopefully, for our, for our listeners in terms of our forecast for this category taking shape. So uh, that wraps up this edition of Ion Innovation. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's always good to speak with you, Carrie. Thank you, you as well. And thank you to our listeners at home for joining this episode of Ion Innovation. I'm your host, Carrie Powers. And we invite you to tune in and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts from. And if you have any ideas for future topics for the OIS podcast, email us at ois at healthogy.com.